This is Faith Ignited, the podcast where we put God back into history. Episode 12, No Neutral Ground. Jack's small knees ground into the hardwood floor beneath him, but he did not yet climb into bed to escape the night chill. Please bless Mammy to get better, he silently pleaded. Please bless the cancer to leave. As he'd seen his mother's health declining over the past weeks, his prayers had grown ever more fervent. The house had been transformed into something alien and menacing. New voices coming and going, strange smells associated with her treatments, midnight noises interrupting Jack's slumber. It was of these things Jack pondered as he sat on his knees. He'd been told that prayers offered in faith would be granted, so he lingered there on the floor, hoping that by sheer will he might convince God to heal Mammy. Surely God would not deny him this request, especially made on behalf of one so deserving as his tender, kind-hearted mother. Finally, Jack rose and climbed into bed and closed his eyes. He awoke not long after, tortured by the throbbing of his tooth. He gently clutched his jaw as though it could ease the pain. He had yet to mention his toothache to Mammy, knowing that she'd insist on taking him to the dentist in the morning, but now all he could think about was the medicine she kept in her cabinet that could offer him the relief that he craved. If he called, he knew she would come, full of her characteristic compassion, and it seemed worth the risk of a dental appointment. Mammy, he called out. His plea was met with silence. Brow furrowing, he tried again. Mammy. The door slowly creaked open. But instead of the silhouette of his mother, the door was filled by the gruff, towering physique of his father. As he stepped inside, the filtered light from the window bathed his face, and Jack was surprised to see his father's generally stoic and emotionally removed expression, replaced with that of raw grief. His eyes were red and swollen, tears still spilling onto his cheeks. "'Where's Mammy?' Jack whispered. "'She's gone, Jack,' his father answered. She died earlier this evening. It was as though the earth had opened and swallowed Jack whole, sending him tumbling ever downward. His young mind couldn't grasp the finality of the statement. But she, he stuttered, unable to complete the thought. Tears began spilling down his eyes, a sob tearing from his throat and sending a wrenching pain through his jaw. He'd been seeking relief for his toothache, but that pain had been replaced by an agony far more ravaging and with far less promise of relief. She wouldn't be there to witness his fast approaching 10th birthday, would no longer be there to warm he and Warney with her loving presence, the presence so often needed to soften their stern father. She was gone, and he hadn't even been able to say goodbye. How he wished he'd at least have been able to embrace her one last time. Jack's eyes fell on the Bible his mother had given him, and anger mingled with his terrible grief. His prayers had availed nothing. What else was he to conclude but that any god that would allow his mother to be taken from him was either not listening or callously indifferent to his pain? Whichever was the case, he felt completely, totally forsaken. Most Christians are very familiar with the story of Adam and Eve and their fall that plunged humanity into its fallen state. It's the first event in recorded history. Adam and Eve had lived in a state the Bible called innocence, 
they had the mentality of children, not knowing the difference between good and evil because, well, they'd only ever known good. All that they had experienced was pleasure, peace, and ease. But when they partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, their naivety was stripped away. Their eyes were opened and they became aware of the complementary opposites of their current experience, including evil, death, and pain. While many know this story, I feel like less are able to see its profound parallels and the implications it has for us. You see, Adam and Eve's story is our story. Their experience is our experience, though ours is, albeit, more of a gradual fall. We've all witnessed the sweet innocence fade from a child's eyes as they enter into their teenage years, the age that most parents dread. (laughs) There is excitement and opportunity that accompanies this state, but it's also coupled with a greater potential for foolish and even bad choices. And they start to realize the imperfections in their parents and in the world, which can lead them to question everything. Teenagers are prone to parrot why, why, why at every opportunity, because that's the time that we come to see the world in its full color, but also in its ugly reality. No wonder the teenage years are infamously challenging. And anyone who watches the news or studies history must admit that great evil has transpired on this planet. Darkness that would cause any human being with a shred of compassion to cry out, Why, God? Why, why, why? So whether it comes early or later in life, for each of us, a moment arrives when innocence is stripped away, and we become aware of the presence of dark forces at work in this world. This can lead to one of two things. People will either have a coming-to-God moment, or it can lead them to a crisis of faith. And this can be something either personal or very widespread. One of these more far-reaching crises happened about 100 years ago. In the early 1900s, the future of the world looked exceptionally bright. The breakthroughs in science and technology were constantly astounding the world. The invention of the tractor, and even the vacuum, helped to make labor less arduous. Henry Ford's assembly line was producing thousands of Model T vehicles, and the Wright brothers made their first successful flight, opening up the world to a people that, for the most part, had only traveled where they could either walk or ride a horse. Talking motion pictures wowed the world, and great minds like Albert Einstein and Marie Curie were making their discoveries. It seemed as though man, through his own brilliance and achievement, was ushering in a new Eden. So when World War I was launched by the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914, most still believed that there was great hope for the future, that this would be the war that would end all wars. No one could have anticipated the horrors that were to come. World War I was the first time machine guns, poison gas, grenades, and artillery were introduced to the battlefield, making it possible for men to be killed much more efficiently than in any previous war. Proof that technology is just a tool. It can be used to create or to destroy. Time spent in the trenches, watching men be blown apart, and then smelling their decomposing corpses, for weeks on end, tried the faith of every soldier that had come to fight for king, country, and God. The war lasted four long years, and over nine million soldiers died, and around 37 million others were wounded. 
On top of this was the Spanish influenza of 1918. It affected over half a million people, killing about 3-5% to of the world's population, making it one of the worst epidemics in human history. And to many living at this time, it seemed like the heavens were either indifferent or cruel. So in Europe and America, Christianity began to wane. It seemed to many irrelevant in light of so much tragedy and heartache. Virtues such as patriotism, bravery, and selflessness began to seem hollow. And because of this, the 1920s and 30s were largely characterized by cynicism, and we saw a big downturn in faith and an upturn in immorality. Hence the name, the Roaring Twenties. But people still hoped that we'd learned our lesson. But just 21 years later, we were again engulfed in a worldwide conflict. This one would give rise to a regime that would commit some of the greatest atrocities this world has ever seen. Six million Jews would die during the Holocaust. Others would survive to relate stories of brutal treatment, starvation, and death that they witnessed on every hand. This caused people to question, where was God? In the Allied nations, people would often turn on their radios to get updates about the war. But in the UK, there was a channel that wasn't reporting news. Those who turned it on heard a man's deep voice expressing views of faith and explaining Christianity in very simple terms. It was like a beam of light piercing the morose darkness and offering the people an alternative to rejection of God, helping them to understand how to cope with evil and pain. His name was C.S. Lewis. And strangely enough, this defender of the faith had spent most of his life as an atheist. So how did someone who spent so much of his life rejecting God end up such a fierce defender of the Christian faith, bringing light to a nation in darkness that felt that God had forgotten them? The remarkable story begins in 1989 in Belfast, Ireland. From the time he was four, Clive's Staples Lewis went by Jack, a name that he adopted from a beloved dog that died when he was young. He had a very idyllic childhood, spending a lot of time with his older brother outdoors. And it was this time that he spent in nature where he gained his love of animal life. Both of Lewis's parents attended college. His father was a solicitor, and the boys were raised to love reading. Lewis wrote, I am the product of endless books. There were books in the study, books in the drawing room, books in the cloakroom, books too deep in the great bookcase on the landing, books in the bedroom, books piled as high as my shoulder in the cistern attic. Nothing was forbidden me. In the seemingly endless rainy afternoons, I took volume after volume from the shelves. I had always the same certainty of finding a book that was new to me, as a man who walks into a field has of finding a new blade of grass. Books acted as a sort of escape for Lewis when his brother was sent away to boarding school, and then even more so when just several years later, his mother died of cancer. Lewis was only nine. He reflected, I remembered what I had been taught, that prayers offered in faith would be granted. I set myself to produce by willpower a firm belief that my prayers for her recovery would be successful. But his mother didn't recover, something that deeply shook this little boy's faith in God. Her death left his father Albert a broken man, even more prone to harsh outbursts. He felt completely incapable of raising his sons. Florence Lewis died in August, and by September, Jack was registered for a boarding school in England. 
So not only did he lose his mother, but he lost everything that was familiar in a very short amount of time. He wrote, With my mother's death, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable, disappeared from my life. While England would end up being where most of his work and life accomplishments would take place, initially, he felt like a fish out of water. He was an Irish boy among English people, still grieving for his mother and for his home. He described boarding school as worse than the trenches. His father did eventually end up pulling him out of boarding school because of how much he disliked it, and instead he began private studies with scholar W.T. Kirkpatrick, who was instrumental in Lewis's academic success, but he also encouraged Lewis in his atheism. And by age 16, Lewis was a confirmed atheist. It was later, while he was a student at Oxford, that World War I broke out. And in 1917, he enlisted in the British Army. His time in the trenches only hardened him further. He said, I was very angry at God for not existing. But as time went on, Lewis realized that atheism didn't offer him any of the answers to the questions that plagued him. There was a hole in his heart. One that had been there since a nine-year-old boy called out to his mother for relief from a toothache only to find out that he would never be able to say goodbye. But Lewis was also a deep thinker. He had to understand things intellectually. And so his conversion to Christianity didn't come all at once. It was as much study as it was faith. He came across a couple of books that really helped to open his mind, and would later joke, a young man that wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. But beyond his personal readings, Lewis loved to discuss ideas and he found a lot of like minds in Oxford that were willing to discuss mythology, literature, and also their faith. Jack's legs matched Tolly and Hugo's pace as their feet trod along the Addison Walk, a nearby stream gurgling pleasantly. Oxford was beautiful this time of year, the air taking on a slight September chill, but not enough to drive a man indoors. He did so enjoy these walking discussions. Jack's mind was turning with Tolly's last comment and Hugo's defense of his stance. Their conversation on mythology had quickly evolved into theology, which, of course, Hugo and Tolly had the same perspective on, both being devout Christians. Tolly, as Jack affectionately called his friend John Tolkien, turned to look at Jack as he went on to defend his point, face serious in concentration. One can hardly deny the Gospels if based on nothing but sheer evidence. Lewis listened, his brow furrowing. It had been two years since he'd come to the reluctant conclusion that God did indeed exist. That had been an extraordinarily humbling moment, spurred partially by seeing one of the fiercest atheists he knew admit the substantial evidence for the Gospels. But even after praying and admitting that God was God, Jack had yet to accept the reality of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So many questions still plagued him. Jack glanced over at Tolly, who was average height and of a more slender build than himself. Hugo was burlier than them both, but it was the similarity of their minds that truly made them friends. And at the moment, they were a great source to which he might look for answers to his questions. Gazing down the trail ahead, he asked, how could it be that there were so many myths in the old world, in Egypt, in Greece, in the Nordic mythologies, of a young man-god dying and coming back to life, of Baldra in the Nordic mythology, Adonis in Greece, 
How do you distinguish between that and Jesus Christ in the Gospels, who surely is a mythological figure, who dies in order to save us from our sins? Isn't that just a myth too? Yes, Tolly answered immediately. Jack's head yanked toward him in surprise, and he saw a smile turning up his mouth. Of course it's a myth, he continued. It just happens to be the one myth that is true. Jack nodded, somewhat struck by his words. Was it possible that all the myths had been pointing to the great truth of Christ? They were coming to the end of their walk, and dusk had caused the air to go chill, but none seemed eager to end the discussion. Let us continue this conversation indoors, shall we? Jack recommended. They sat in plush chairs, talking late into the night. Jack's mind was spinning. A great crack had been made in his defenses, and light was beginning to pour through. Maybe, just maybe, the Christians had had it right all along. Eight days after this discussion, Lewis and his brother Warney took a motorcycle and sidecar ride to the zoo. The drive there would be the culminating point of a long journey that Lewis took to Christ. Proof that conversion can happen in the most unlikely of places, and to the most unlikely of people. He later wrote of his experience, When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. But when we reached the zoo, I did. I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless on the bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. From death to life, from darkness to light, the fog had faded and the sun was now shining bright. Luce described himself as the most dejected and reluctant convert in England. But once he became a Christian, he was all in. His other writing pursuits were set aside, and he began focusing on Christian topics. He wrote books such as The Problem with Pain and Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity is actually a compilation of the broadcasts that he did through BBC during World War II. His insights, especially on pain and the evil that's in the world, inspired and continues to inspire people's minds. He learned that, quote, If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what makes evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. It's really kind of ironic that people can constantly reject God and go against his teachings and then try to blame him for the evil that exists. It can be our very trials that are the things that turn us to God. Lewis said, We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And sometimes, as a perfect father, God has to say no when it comes to our prayers. Not because he doesn't care, but because he knows what's best. No child is benefited by having exactly what they want granted every time they ask for it. He loves us too much to give us something that will not be for our ultimate benefit. This was something that, as a nine-year-old boy, Lewis didn't understand. But from his writing, we can see that he clearly came to see the bigger picture. He wrote, 
I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking or sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. The friendship between Jack and Tolly, or C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, which I recently learned is the correct pronunciation, I've been calling him Tolkien my whole life, is one of the most significant in history. They had more than the greatness of their minds in common. They'd both lost their mothers when they were young. Both had experienced the unspeakable depravity of the trenches in World War I. Yet their writing doesn't reflect hopelessness. On the contrary, the books that they're most famous for, The Chronicles of Narnia and The Lord of the Rings trilogy, extol virtues such as honor, selflessness, and brotherhood, and the ultimate conquest of good over evil. The evil that they witnessed in the world didn't prove to Lewis and Tolkien that God didn't exist. Instead, it proved that there is a devil. Darkness is real, and good and evil will always be at war in our world. Both Narnia and Middle-earth portray people living under the oppression of a false ruler as they await for the return of the rightful king. Listen to this description of Aragorn as he's crowned king at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence, for it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient of days he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood. And wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. And then Faramir cried, Behold the king. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Bible calls Satan the prince of this world, and Christ the king of kings. We live in a fallen world, but we need to decide where we stand. Lewis said, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. We don't do favors to anyone by being fence-sitters, or as Christ put it, lukewarm. One of the things I admire the most about C.S. Lewis is that the moment he became a Christian, he joined the battle. He was no bystander. He said, My hope is that when I die, all of hell rejoices that I am out of the fight. I've heard people ask, If there is a God, why doesn't he stop suffering? Why doesn't he do something about it? My answer? He did do something about it. He sent his son. Christ is the answer, and someday he will wipe tears from all faces and heal what has been broken. He will raise the dead and take his rightful place as king of this world. It was that understanding that helped C.S. Lewis to rise above the darkness of the time in which he lived. I think the reason that Narnia and Lord of the Rings have been so wildly successful is because they touch something deep inside of us. They echo eternal truths that resound in our souls. Aslan told the Pevensey children as they left Narnia, In your world I have another name. You must learn to know me by it. That was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. Though it may seem like we're caught in an eternal winter, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve cast out of the garden, the true king will come. His light will abolish all darkness. It's our trust in him that chases away despair and ignites our faith. <laughs>